Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. Now it's time to get all nostalgic for the 90s as we speak to one of the most popular presenters of the period. His big break came as he was selected to host Blue Peter, but he cut his acting teeth on Children's Ward, was star of BBC hit Dangerfield, presented The Clothes Show and even had a role in Emmerdale. More recently, he's had a front-row seat in Hollywood, interviewing the biggest movie stars in the world and presenting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire stateside. Now he's about to embark on comedy as he hosts a new regular panel show. The eight-part series about the funny side of being a dad is produced by Distinct Nostalgia producers Made in Manchester for Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. Yes, this week Ashley's been speaking to broadcaster, presenter and actor Tim Vincent. Expect some interesting anecdotes. Tim's even worked for Donald Trump. Have fun. Well, it's great to speak to you, Tim, uh, for Distinct Nostalgia. We've been trying to catch up now for a while, haven't we? And uh, we've finally done it. Um, I obviously want to talk to you about Blue Peter. I want to talk to you about starting your career on Children's Ward. Um, I want to talk to you about your appearance in Emmerdale, uh, The Clothes Show, Dangerfield. So many things that you were involved in. Um, You were certainly, um, if we're talking about being nostalgic for the 90s, uh, you were uh, an icon uh, of the 90s. I want to talk all, all about that. And of course, your more recent career, which has taken you to America, interviewing all the Hollywood stars on a regular basis. Um, but let's start off with something more recent and of the moment, in fact. Um, you and I are at the moment collaborating um, on a new project, uh, a new eight part uh, comedy panel series uh, created by my company Made in Manchester by my colleague uh, Kurt Brooks uh, and produced by us for uh, Radio 4. In fact, it goes out later uh, this week. Its first airing uh, is imminent and it'll also be available on BBC Sounds. Um, and it's called The Likely Dads. Um, it's exciting times, new programme, never been done before. Why don't you, in your words, just tell us what you think the very essence is of the likely dads it is a panic room for parents really paternal parents that have got you know no other areas that they can actually have a bit of fun and just talk about being a parent uh, and it's hosted by me and um, we have two team captains if you can call them teams but two regulars which is mick ferry and russell kane who bring very different comedic takes on being a parent russell kane is a textbook dad um, would weigh the food and measure everything and make sure that there were blackout blinds and only half an hour a day of um, Peppa Pig. And Mick, who's only a couple of years older than myself, but had his kids early and is a great bear of a man from up north who would just like open the door in the morning, let the kids run outside. That's your entertainment, you know, but with a grin on his face, because I think everybody on the show, guests included, all bond over the fact that uh, nothing is below a joke and we all love our kids. And it's just a great premise to be able to have fun with each other. And you kind of get tips out of there. You might be silly tips that one of the comedians said that he tells his six-year-old son that he's five so he can get into Alton Towers for free. Or it could be a great tip about not expecting to be valued that much in the first six months of the baby's life because, you know, dads are a bit superfluous to, you know, the proceedings to begin with. But it's basically good fun talking about parental fails, tips, 
experiences and having a laugh. Now, some people would say, and I'm sure we'll get this as a criticism from some people. In fact, I think we already had it when we did the pilot. Um, that um, why do we need a parenting show, um, a comedy, parenting comedy, all about dads? Dads and men get too much publicity. It's, you, you know, we don't really need that. You know, an all-male panel and all the rest of it. You know, why do you think men, even if it's only in this half an hour comedic way, need a voice, need somewhere to talk about what it's like to be a parent? Well, first of all, I don't think there's that many men skewed shows that talk about parenting personally i don't know i don't know any of the uh, you know uh, a big name or something that i've heard and secondly it's it's a hook to hang on good-natured fun and jokes about being a parent i think really because we're, you know if you haven't heard the show and the pilot did very well on radio four and subsequently got an eight-part commission series it's not anti-women if anything it's anti-men you know, men get together and take the mick out of each other. You know, you know, they say a shark can sense a, a drop of blood in, you know, several kilometres of ocean. That's that's the guys with anybody that says anything, you know, that's half funny that they don't realise and they, they seize on it. And I think it's quite refreshing because I think when you and I sat down at the beginning when it was just an idea, we were working on it. I said, you know, the prime example for me is why is it called mother care? Why isn't it called parent care? You know, women would be up in arms if it was called dad care and everybody had to go there to buy the, the, the prams. And it's overlooked that it was called mother care because it was just part of the firmament and how it was, you know. So I think that was something that we should wanted to explore. And then, you know, everything apart from that, uh, Kurt, who's the series producer on the show, you know, we'd wax lyrical about why he preferred Bing and I preferred um, Peppa Pig because <laughs> you end up watching all these things. One of the reasons why you got the gig in terms of hosting it is because we thought you were perfect because you'd literally just become a dad in your mid-40s. And not only you just become a dad in your mid-40s, you became a dad of twins in your mid-40s. So you have been left completely holding two babies, as it were. <laughs> um, how's that going? Because it's two. The, 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 the boys have just turned two, haven't they? You know, yes. what's um, what's the experience been so far? And be realistic. Has it, you know, as a forty-seven-year-old man hurtling towards fifty, you know, <laughs> how, how how tough is it? Well, it is tough because you know it's too. You know, anybody that's at home and listen, you know, anybody, even when you're walking down the street and you're pushing two adorable little boys who, you know, the absolute love of my life and the reason to get up in the morning people still go Oof, bloody hell twins eh that must be tough now luckily i had a couple of mates that had twins late on for the first time dads were twins and they said listen you know it is tough but you know no different it's tough having a baby crying all the time a new baby and you're just having two of them now it, it, it's it's the the great thing about likely dads is that you work out that different experiences apply to different dads at different times. So for me now, they're two years old. When you get to a playground, you take them out the pram and they're off like bloody hares. They want to go in different directions and you have to quickly work out which one you're going to run after and rugby tackle and, and then follow the other one. And so that's a bit of a testing time for me. But yeah, I was 45. I met uh, Gemma, the mother of the children, and we, we very quickly fell in love and it all happened very quickly. And within three months, she was pregnant with twins. Twins come very early. 
because they're twins. They're taking up twice as much space as most babies. So they'll always come a couple of weeks early by design. So by the time the babies had arrived, we were holding a baby each in our arms in the hospital, looking at each other, knowing each other in less than a year. So, you know, subsequently it didn't work out between the two of us, but I have the utmost respect and uh, admiration and awe of Gemma because she's just a perfectly natural mother and knows everything and knows exactly what they should be eating. So that, you know, I wish I was, a, I was, I wish I was one of the twins or a triplet because they have all the best food. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll go around, you know, and starving and, you know, and I said, what are you putting out there? They'd be like grapes and celery and pita bread and hummus. He said, oh, I'm doing them a metze. I said, I didn't even know what a metze was when I was growing up in Wrexham. Fabulous. Just you mentioned there that you, you, <laughs> they're running around like hares. Um, mm. Yeah, hares are very fast. But um, if you want to stop that, um, what you need to do is go to a local park which I saw the other day when I was out in, in, in Manchester, and um, just point the, point the squirrels out to them. Because uh, I watched this little girl, two little girls the other day, literally for about half an hour, they were occupied with chasing these squirrels around the tree <laughs> constantly. And of course, the squirrels are much quicker than they are. You know, they're always going to get away. But they had such tremendous fun. They were about two, just ch- going round and round in circles trying to find the find these squirrels. So there you go. There's a, there's a, there's a tip for you. <laughs> I'm going to try that before I see you next time. <laughs> so then, uh, Tim, let's um, digress from Likely Dads and um, tell the full story of Tim Vincent, shall we? Um, I'd like to begin, actually, by going beyond Blue Peter, beyond your early acting career, and sort of taking your memories back to being a child in Wrexham in North Wales. And... Um, yeah, what were you like as a kid, and and did did you always have an ambition from a very early age of wanting to be on television? I absolutely wanted to be on television. In what role, I wasn't quite sure, but um, I grew up on a a, a a a hall. I actually grew up in Queensbridge Hall, which sounds incredibly posh, um, and it was, I suppose, in some respects. We had my grandparents had half the hall they'd bought. Um, with a small holding so it was we basically lived on a farm and uh, it was more like the Waltons you know secondhand furniture and we had a pet squirrel called Squibby that lived indoors and used to gnaw on the electrics and you'd put a light on and it would blow you know we, we weren't uh, Lord and Lady Muck it was very much relaxed but having grown up a little bit remotely in you know in the countryside I think that does one of two things to your uh, your, your, your psyche and, and, and you'd i personally would start to imagine things in my head and what I would want to do uh, and perform and do bits and pieces and being surrounded by more adults than other children because there weren't kids down the road that you can just go and play with so I think that's where the the germ of an idea started but really the reason that I ended up on television is because of Ricky Tomlinson from the royal family and formerly Brookside he lived um about 20 miles away from me and uh, decided to open a, a drama school, evening drama school for drama lessons for local kids. And I went along and uh, I don't know, about three, six months into going once a week and uh, having a, a, an acting class off uh, Ricky Tomlinson, which was fascinating. Um, they heard of nationwide auditions for a brand new TV series called Children's Ward, which was being written by, Paul Abbott and Kay Meller, who've had stellar careers before and since, and Russell T. Davis, who was the scriptwriter on it. 
uh, it then went on to produce it. And luckily for me, because I've had no proper training, um, they were looking for untrained child actors. They wanted actors that, you know, didn't come into a room tap dancing and knew exactly where the spot was. They wanted it a little bit more uh, rough and ready. And that's where I came in, rough and ready. <laughs> and uh, luckily I auditioned for, a, for one part and they asked me to come back for the lead, Billy Ryan. And amazingly, I got it. But, you know, you can imagine... I lived in a council flat with my mum at that point, you know, in uh, Overton-on-Dee, which is in the Wrexham County. And, uh, you know, the next thing there's phone calls um, saying, though, you've got this part and you're going to be filming for 13 episodes and you're going to be in Granada and you're playing a teenage alcoholic. So it was a bit of a culture shock for my mother. Not so much for me. I think when you're 15, you just roll with the punches and it's, oh, that's what's happening. The school were a bit shocked because they had a phone call from whoever it was at the production company or um, sorting out, you know, schooling and things like that, because you're not going to be there. And they've obviously never had anything like that in school. Our school didn't even have a drama class in the lunch break, never mind a drama GCSE. You know, that was, you know, that was completely foreign and exotic for them. And they assumed that I was just going on blockbusters and I needed a couple of days off, which was the TV series at the time. So, Age 15, Ricky Tomlinson said that um, he would be my agent for the first season just to help me out. And um, that's how we rolled. And were you, what you were like, what were you like at that age? Were you pretty confident? I mean, I mean, not all actors are sort of vivacious uh, and confident, are they? Some are very quiet and I've known quite a lot of actors are very, in, you know, insular in many ways. But what were you like as a 15 year old? We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, all right? Oh, yeah. I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, me, we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this, like... Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I got lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit. I think you're exactly right with actors, and I've worked with many actors and interviewed many actors for 15 years on my entertainment show, uh, and well-known actors, and some you know, are shy and you have to ask them exactly the right questions, otherwise you get monosyllabic one-word answers, which is exactly what Robert De Niro is like, who I've got a soft spot for, but a lot of uh, interviewers um, raise their eyebrows when they have to interview him. Um, but I'm sure we'll come back to, to Bob later on. But myself, I think at 15, most 15-year-olds are incredibly shy, but also at the same time pushing the boundaries and... I, it was a perfect scenario for me because I'm not overly confident and there certainly wasn't at 15, which, you know, a uh, 15-year-old boy that's going through puberty is. Um, but they, they, they were very nice uh, on the production of Children's Ward and they weren't expecting somebody to be absolutely perfect in everything they were doing. You know, I always turned up knowing my lines, but because it was kids, you, you were being coached and taught and uh, you were learning in every scene because they said, well, let's try it this way. It wasn't like, you know, okay, stand there, say your lines, cut, we're moving on. You're like, ooh, 
Was that right? Did I do very well? Oh, okay. So it's perfect for me at the time. I'm not sure if they were expecting a 18, 19 year old to turn up that I would have um, fit, fitted the role quite so well. And what were you, what were you expecting in your mind that this show would be and what would be expected of you? Because, you know, you, are, you were very young. You, you obviously had got ideas that you wanted to do things, but to actually be thrust into that, you know, that, that area in Granada TV, which is a huge place, you know, lots of stars, lots of things going on there. You know, what, what did, um, you know, were you, were you, did you find yourself being quite daunted by it? How did you feel when you, when you turned up? Do you know what? You, 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 maybe because I was 15 or maybe the way it was run, you weren't daunted by it because it was fun. You were there to do something. You were with lots of other kids similar to your age. Everybody kept saying, oh, well, this is going to be like uh, Grange Hill, you know, and there were great storylines that were involved. You know, personally, I was a 15-year-old playing a 15-year-old teenage alcoholic that went into a psychiatric ward. So there was some quite harrowing scenes. So I think they held your, your hands along the way. Um, and the, the exec producer at the, on the very first series that oversaw it all and, and, and made it happen in the way it did was a guy called Rod Natkin, who I very much am indebted to for giving me the, the, the part ultimately. Um, and he was fantastic by default, making sure everybody was, was kind of... I remember one day, because, you know, Granada at that time was... It was fantastic to be there. You know, Coronation Street was, you know, huge show. There were so many other shows being made there at the time. There were so many creative talents around there. And I'm not sure if it's the same now, but when we were there, it was one big makeup room. So when you sat down to have your makeup, you could have had any m number of very famous Coronation Street cast next to you. Uh, and, and one day, you know, they used to have lots of guest stars coming in to do other dramas. And Rick Mail was sitting next to me. And I was a huge fan of uh, Rick Mail. And... Uh, the, the makeup lady just said, oh, he's really nice. I did him the other day. Ask him, you can ask him. And, you know, with the, with the makeup department, they have cameras to take pictures of you to keep the continuity. She said, I'll even get a picture with you. And I said, mm. she said, honestly, just, you know, just ask him. And so I, I leant over and I said, I'm terribly sorry, Rick, um, but I'm a huge fan of yours. Would it be possible to get a, a, an autograph and maybe a picture? And I was only 15. And he just went, turned to me and he went, no, fuck off, uh, which made me, how we laughed and he said yes of course i will ah, yes absolutely. and he was absolutely lovely so you, you, those days were always happening but i do remember one day that we were all called in all the kids you know and i, I you know the, the kids went from about 18 down to about nine or ten and we were told off for using the set as a playground because you can imagine you know the set gets closed at lunchtime and everybody goes off and the cameras are pushed to one side but for us kids there was like dozens of hospital beds and wheelchairs and drips and curtains and a playroom and doors that moved and you know dead areas so we used to run around and play hide and seek or have races on on you know on board the um the beds and things so i remember it's all uh, being remonstrated with by you know and it felt a little bit um you know funny at the time thinking oh we've got told off but it was a very enjoyable safe space at the time and of course, there's not just you that's been through children's ward. You know, every other actor of a certain generation seems to have gone through children's ward at some point. I mean, it'd be great to do a reunion and, and look back at all the people who went through children's ward because it's a list a mile long, isn't it, of, of, of people. Who were your contemporaries? Who did you come across while you were there? 
Well, in the first series, which basically I should have only really been in one series because I was a patient, uh, but they liked me and Russell T Davis always jokes about the fact that uh, he, he, he then took over in control and would just write scenes for me. I basically, Billy, who had a love affair with another patient uh, played by Jenny Lookcraft Keeley, uh, we had a baby. So our storyline, and she became a nurse, so it was tied to Children's Wood. So, uh, you know, and I was an electrician for a while, uh, you know, working on the ward and doing bits and pieces. So how long were you in Children's Ward in the end? I did it for six years, six seasons, and they offered me a seventh season. But um, unfortunately, at that point, I, I'd been offered Blue Peter. So uh, unfortunately, I had to... Um, not continue with children's war but i loved it i think it was brilliant and like you say there were so many amazing uh, actors in there that were just absolutely fantastic and some would come in for cameos and some would come in for you know longer runs but i've over the years i've interviewed kate winslet for american television and the first time that i uh, properly met her um, i was waiting to go into i don't know where it was savoy the dorchester one of the suites and she walked down the the, um, the corridor to go into the room we were waiting outside with my American producer. And she went, oh my God, Tim. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never met her, but she's incredibly lovely and bouncy and beautiful and fun and no side to her. And she just came up, she gave me a massive hug and she just went, I loved Children's Ward. I loved it. So you forget who was around at that time, you know, it was, it's funny. So needless to say that interview went well and also my american producer was like children's what your acting career in a way i know you've done things since and we'll talk about that but your initial acting career although although it was six years and six quite intensive years i'm sure was was fairly short-lived because you got this opportunity for blue peter but tell us how that came about because didn't you lie to get an audition i did very much so and it's probably a good indication or uh, illustration for uh, out-of-work actors or presenters. I had, at the time, believe it or not, my agent was Nigel Martin-Smith, who was Take That's manager in Manchester. Half Moon Chambers. Um, and it's like the little joke in uh, Widnell and I when he said, I had a, an agent five floors up and never a effing job at the top of him. So I used to go in and see Nigel and he never really get anything, but I did a bit of, you know, a little bit of modelling here and there. And his previous business partner, I, I reached out to and she said, well, look, I'll look after you and see if anything comes in. And the next week she said, uh, this invitation has come for the big breakfast. We're only one party or only two. I think it was only one party and they had a big party down in London. She said, you should go because I had been a guest on that and had done a tiny bit of presenting with Zig and Zag. So I thought, well, I'm gonna go. I asked uh, a couple of mates from Wrexham and we made this uh, odyssey all the way down to London to do, the, uh, to do this party and met uh, an agent there who subsequently took me on, subsequently heard about Blue Peter, sent all my, my details and pictures over to Blue Peter. He said, thank you very much, but we're looking with somebody with an academic background or a journalistic background. Now I deferred my entry after, I still did my GCSEs and A-levels filming uh, Children's Ward and then deferred my entry to university. So we rejigged my CV and just, you know, uh, emphasized the more that, you know, I was educated and had just taken a year out before I was gonna go to university. And they said, oh, Oh, right. Well, please come in and we'll see you. And then over many, many um, torturous auditions, 
where they had me in doing all kinds of stuff to see how I would be. I eventually got it. But the, the auditions were famous on Blue Peter because lots of people, and you can see it on American television now, and I know a lot of great American TV presenters, but some presenters are great at just saying what they need to do and read the order cue fast or slow. But if something went wrong, they would look like they're fighting off a stroke. You know, the persona would crack straight away because that's not really them. They're just pretending. And Blue Peter, they can't afford to have that. They have to have somebody that's a person that the audience will love and identify with and hopefully um, cheer on when they do things. So on Blue Peter, you know, yes, they get you to do the make item and do an historical item, but also they would get you bouncing up and down on a trampoline or in my case for the second audition, they had a um, mechanical bull in the studios where you had to stand on it and obviously they would operate it and jig it around because at that point you're going in different directions looking for the camera you just have to say what you're going to say and hopefully it makes sense and that's where the real you comes through but it's very very intimidating because at the time blue peter was on you know bbc one twice a week and it subsequently went to three times a week when i joined they were getting like five six million viewers a week it was getting thirty thousand letters per week it had six people in its correspondence unit just opening letters. And you're all of a sudden walking into this cathedral of TC8 or TC2, you know, the big studios at Television Centre, working with these famous people, Diane Louise Jordan, uh, John Leslie, Anthea Turner, you, you, you know, these are subsequently became colleagues or even friends, you know, but at the time you're like, wow. And I remember it's probably once of two occasions where I, or three occasions where I really wanted the job. And I really, you know, it wasn't just a job that was going to pay bills. This was a defining career moment uh, for me, if I got it. And I was, you know, spent days, you had to make a, I can't remember what it was, I think it was a Christmas card or something, Christmas cracker. And I, I spent days in my room rehearsing on how to make this Christmas cracker. So I made it sure I knew exactly what I was doing if anything went wrong. And You'd done Children's Ward, you then got this opportunity to, you know, to, to, to audition uh, for Blue Peter and eventually got it. But had you had any, any sort of um, ambition from a very young age to present Blue Peter? Was it something that was in your mind all the time? Or was it just something that came up? I mean, when you used to watch Blue Peter as a kid, was it something you thought, oh, I'd love to be there, I'd love to be presenting that show? My mentality, and I think it's completely different now because TV being on, you know, social media is accessible to anybody. Anybody can just film themselves and post it and get likes. But you've got to imagine that, you know, in the mid 80s and late 80s, you know, I lived in, uh, you know, out in the middle of, you know, not a, a, a huge city. So, you know, I, we didn't know anybody that had ever been on anything. So it wasn't an option in my mind that I'm going to end up presenting Blue Peter. Now you are the most famous person from Wrexham, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Robbie Savage, the, the soccer player, football player, and, and Ricky Tomlinson lives not far. So basically, I'm the third most famous person. Uh, but having done Children's Ward, um, then you end up being in Smash Hits magazine and, you know, all those type of things and going on going live as a guest because the show did well. So I'd see other presenters doing something. That's really fun. I'd love to do that. And I'd love to have the opportunity to go off and do this and that. So it was in my mind that I wanted to go for it. And also now, you know, there's lots of different opportunities to do different things. But when I was coming through the ranks, you know, 
there was the major channel five wasn't even a you know a thought process of being a channel at the time you know it was bbc one two three and four and there was no presenting jobs on four so you know every every man and his dog was going for blue peter you know there were people that much older than me and much more experienced than me but i think you know being northern being fresh and being up for a, to have a go at things worked in my favor do you think that i mean when you first started going through the process of trying to get blue peter I mean, were you we're going back to the confidence thing again were you were you confident that you'd take, get taken seriously or or did the nerves really kick in with with blue peter um Again, I think I was incredibly lucky that they didn't, they knew that I hadn't presented before. They knew I had an acting background um, and they were very careful of not throwing you too much in at the deep end. That said, you're still presenting a live show, a big, massive live show with millions of people watching it. You can't hide for too long on that show, but they gently brought you in. And I think very early on, they threw me into a lot of the military uh, films, the exercises where I'd have to sleep outdoors or do snow survival, which was probably the, the most difficult thing that I ever had to do on the show, or run marathons and, and those kind of things people identify with. And, you know, it's almost fly on the wall when you're doing that kind of stuff. They're just seeing you go through something incredibly difficult and thinking, mm, I'm glad I'm at home in a warm living room sipping a cup of tea and I don't have to do it. Um, but as time went on, you know, you did bigger and better things on the show. But I, I, I remember the the audition and certainly, you know, that would have had a full on effect to the first few shows is that they put makeup on you. And I remember a friend of mine being in the um, dressing room with me just before I was going out to do the show. And and, and uh, he said, how, how are you feeling? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I said, but look, and I pulled my T-shirt a bit further down and where the makeup stopped, I was bright red underneath. My whole body was saying get out of there get out of there and my, my my brain was saying get in there get in there so it was a very difficult thing but after a while you know you do that show after you know two or three months of it you start to get into it and then it was such a big show then that you know whatever you did on the monday night or the thursday night the next day it didn't matter where you go somebody would be like, hey bloody hell i can't believe you did that or Hey, I like that one. Or did, you know, there'd be something there. It was so immediate. I remember within a year or so, um, I, I'd agreed to run the New York Marathon for, for um, Blue Peter. And I was trying to train, you know, go out and run. You know, I was only like 22 or something. And you'd go out running somewhere. And it was like bloody rocky. Every time you went anywhere, it didn't matter. People on buses shouting out of windows and stuff going, go on, good luck for November or where's your badge, you know, and you'd be running and I'm thinking, oh my God, everything that you do is, is this Truman Show microcosm of, you know, for three, well, I say for three years on Blue Peter because you were doing stuff all the time, but that had a knock-on effect to other stuff that you did afterwards. People knew you. Can you remember the moment that you were told that you got the gig? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lewis Bronze, who goes into my little black book of being internally grateful for, who was the editor of Blue Peter, who took over from Biddy Baxter and wanted to push it on to the next level, which he, I think he very successfully did with his casting of uh, presenters, and who actually lives down the road from me now and still is, is a friend of mine. He called me down again to London to say, listen, we need to have another interview with you. You've done your two auditions. And I thought, well, they must be incredibly bloody cruel if they're bringing me all the way from Wrexham down to London to tell me that I haven't got it to my face. But that could be TV, I don't know. So I went down there and he was very, 
very relaxed about it, you know, behind the desk. And he said, so what do you think about, you know, I said, yeah, it's fantastic. And in retrospect, luckily, you know, because I was so laid back and, you know, you're Northern, I'm Northern. We don't necessarily overinflate anything. We just go, oh, yeah, no, it'd be great. You know, he said, yeah, so you'd, you'd think about moving. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then he went, oh, right. He said, well, you've got the job if, if you want it. And I went, oh, really? And then, you know, I was absolutely on cloud nine. He was there, fantastic. He said, listen, it's going to be a quick turnaround. And I was, I'd auditioned when I was 20, but nearly 21. And I had the 20, my 21st, which was in a, um, a drag queen review bar in Manchester, believe it or not, uh, with my friends. Uh, so I had that and almost immediately, you know, within weeks, I was down in London doing the show. It was that quick. But I remember walking out of television centre and walking across the, um, the pedestrian crossing to go to the tube station and ringing Jimmy, my agent, who's sadly passed away, but saying, I've got it. And he, he knew, because he was in the industry, he knew how big it was and he knew all the other names that had been gone for it, big names. And he was like, you've got it. And I went, yeah, I think, he said, you think you've got it? You've got it. I said, no, I've got it. He's, he's asked me and he's talked about coming down and, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was screaming at the end, at the, end of the phone and, um, and so was I, you know, it was just absolutely fantastic. You know, it's one of those times that you do walk on air. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember about. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner Cell Block. Cell Block B. Prisoner Cell Block H. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. I'm, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> They're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know oh. if I can accept that. Coming this autumn. That's the cracker, isn't it? They uh, always are. <laughs> Only here. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, <laughs> stay away from me. We're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. <laughs> We're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. Just go, you're going to see your father now for ten minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. I want to talk about the fame side of things in a moment, but let's talk a bit about more about Blue Peter. I mean, it is a case of, uh, you've often said um, on other interviews, you've said to me that it's the Swiss army knife of, of presenting, you know, the amount of things that you have to do, the variety of things, the juggling of, of stuff, 
I mean, it, you know, you really are thrown in the deep end and it's, it's sink or swim, isn't it? You know what I mean? I mean, you knew that was the case, didn't you, when you, when you got it? But was there a moment at the beginning where you're thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, because Blue Peter's Blue Peter, but within that, there's lots of different strengths of certain characters and certain items that certain presenters would do better than others, but they're pretty hard and fast about everybody does everything. Yes, you might end up doing the history bits a bit more, but also, you know, you're doing three live shows a week and filming in amongst it, you know, if you've just got to get on with it. it. It's a very technical show, Blue Peter. You know, it's live, there's up to eight cameras. It's a big studio. You have lots of different items. The, the biggest challenge for me was not the fact that it was live, not the fact that I would have to do semi-dangerous things uh, and arduous things, you know, with the army or the other stuff, was the make items because the make items when the make item is coming up in the studio, in the show, and you obviously know it because you've been sent the script the night before, the bike would arrive the night before with your script for the next day. And you'd go straight through onto the first summary page and it would say, who's doing what? And you'd go, okay, oh no, got the make item, bloody hell, God, no, right, what have I got to do? And then you'd go through it and you think, right, okay. Because the make items are five, six minutes, just you, to the camera trying to explain to millions of people, and I don't just mean millions, like five, six million people, how to make something that could be complicated, easy. And that could be cooking, or it could be making something that's a garage so you can put your dinky cars in, whatever happens to be. You've usually got somebody by your knees that's handing things up to you. You've got various cameras that you're looking at that have all squeezed into you in your podium where you're making the item. And sometimes there's a camera looking down at your hands and you've got to know when each bit is going to which bit. You've got somebody talking in your head. It, 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 you know, it's, it's a big feat to learn all those things and make it enjoyable. It's not just like, phew, I got through that. You know, it's got to be actually something that people enjoy. And to this day, you know, I watch... I listen to various things on the radio and news program and, and they make such small mistakes right at the beginning of interviews that you're taught on Blue Peter. You never say to somebody when it's live, hello, how are you? Right, what are you doing? Because then they say hello and it's edgy. You always go, hello, nice to meet you. You're the expert in sheep farming. What does, you know, you go straight into it. Or even when the, the news in the morning, when they're reviewing the papers, you always have the paper behind the next newspaper. So when you take one newspaper away, the camera is a close-up of the next newspaper. And they don't do that. They put one paper in and then they take that out. It's dead space, it's an ugly shot. And then the, there's little things that you don't even realize that you've learned along the way on this type of show. Of course, you'd followed in the long line of Blue Peter presenters. I can't remember which number you were. What number were you, do you know? Uh, 2021, I think something okay. around there. The loads of people have done it before who all equally had become household names, people you'd grown up watching and things like that. How daunting was that in terms of, sort of following in their footsteps? Yeah, well, I'm at an age of hurtling towards 50. I'm nearly 48. Um, so I now feel that I'm kind of at the latter end of, oh, you know, that the, the presenters, I've nearly said kids, but the younger presenters that do the show Parents will say, oh, well, I remember Tim Vincent and they weren't really, I'm sure, you know, they'll have seen clips because they work on the show, but they don't necessarily know who I am. You know, it's 30, 30 plus people know me. Um, yeah, there are massive 
names associated. The show is the show has always been bigger than the names. I think now because the show isn't on a prime channel at a good time, the names are starting to become bigger than the show, or certain names. Yeah. Now, obviously, you're not alone. You are alone doing the makes, but you're not alone in terms of the show. You know, most people will think of their Blue Peter presenters that they remember growing up. And I remember interviewing Lewis Bronze uh, about a Blue Peter, and he could guess straight away who my Blue Peter presenters were just by, well, just certain things I said. You know, he was able to say, oh, it was Sarah Green, Peter Duncan, Simon Groom, you know, from 1981 or whatever. Um, so there were each, each era is defined by different people. Um, who were you with at the time and, and how easy was it to get that chemistry? Because you had to get it fairly quickly, didn't you? Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't happen and that's why some presenters don't last as long, you know, and that's, that's with any TV show. I replaced John Leslie um, and was working with Diane Louise Jordan and Anthea Turner. Anthea left relatively quickly after about six months to Passages New, and she was replaced by Stuart Miles. And then Katie Hill joined, uh, and that pretty much was, you know, Diane, Stuart and myself, and then Stuart, myself and Katie, you know, that was pretty much, because I was there three years, and in that time we travelled to lots of different places. And Katie was a fascinating person because she was, she was somebody that, was if you cut her in half, you know, it said Blue Peter right through the middle like a stick of rock. She loved that show, really wanted the show, enjoyed the show. And that was great to work with somebody that was up for and, and, and wanted to do it. Because, you know, you can imagine some presenters that have been there for five, six years are like, ah, oh, another make item. You know, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit because everybody enjoyed the show. But you can imagine if it's your first year, you're going to be much more excited about going away on a summer expedition for three weeks, you know. So, you know, and the, the, the charisma and the um, relationships built quite quickly, you know, with Stuart and Katie. It was easier for me because I was joining Diane and Anthea who were established presenters on that show and they did it a certain way. And that was great for me joining because you either learned or worked out what you would do differently or the same as them. And then when they started to leave, it was great for me because I, even though I was only like 22, 23, I was the elder statesman. When the presenter leaves and you have your script, your Blue Peter script, your name goes higher up as the first presenter. And I remember one day thinking, Gulp, I'm the highest presenter. I've only been here about two years. <laughs> or nearly the highest presenter. And I've only been here a couple of years. What's the most bizarre thing you think you did on, on, on Blue Peter? I mean, you did lots of things over the years. But when you think back, what's the, what's the most bizarre thing, the thing that really stands out as being something you, you think, God, I can't believe they made, made me do that? You know what? That show, because it was so famous and it had such great contacts and it had run for so long, you were constantly doing weird and wonderful things that and i was talking to katie um about the the podcast in search of valerie singleton uh, and she said that often at dinner parties she pipes down because somebody will say something and she'll go well i actually did that with the red arrows or i did that with the submarine this you know and that's the same for me there's so many i remember one week meeting the queen breaking the sound barrier in a tornado jet and, so, and doing a make item or something in, the, in, in Blue Peter. And that was just one week. But I think for me, the things that I look back on now that um, have been particularly memorable to me is that 
on one occasion I was sent to Norway to do snow survival with the British Army and uh, people may or may not realise but the British Army have a posting of troops in Norway where they go and learn how to survive in Arctic conditions and I was sent out there with the producer Alex Legere who used to be in the army himself who's a dear friend of mine who's now retired but he I always called him my TV dad because we we did a lot of things together on Blue Peter and he was always so happy that I said yes to all everything because I wanted to have a go and I was physically not now but physically at the time able to do these quite arduous tasks and one of them he said oh we'll go to Norway which basically means we will be deposited in the middle of the mountains. You will be given a shovel and you'll have one uh, soldier that will be assigned to you. And there'll be a camera crew, which was him, a sound guy and a camera guy. And we would dig a hole in the snow drifts and sleep inside it all together. And because it was a confined, and you can imagine how cold that is. You know, it's really cold. So cold that you slept in your all your clothes, all your army fatigues in a, in a sleeping bag with the bivouac that went over your sleeping bag. And you would even have to keep your shoes off, your military boots off, but still inside the sleeping bag. Because if they were outside the sleeping bag, still inside the hole, they would freeze solid. And they would have one candle lit in this tiny little hole where we were all sleeping to keep you warm. And one person had to stay awake to you know, make sure that nobody was in any difficulties and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, the cameraman smuggled in a bottle of vodka. And we basically passed this bottle of vodka around through this torturously long night because nobody was going to get any sleep. And also, I knew what was going to happen the next day, which was they then took you on skis behind a skidoo down to a frozen lake that was so deep with ice that they cut probably the size of, um, you know, 20 foot by 10 foot hole in the ground, into the ice. So the water was exposed. And it was so cold that they would have to keep recutting it with a chainsaw because it was refreezing. Um, and you had to jump into this hole with a 60 pound backpack on your back. Now the ice, I know I keep going on about how drastic this situation was, but they, they actually landed a Wessex helicopter on the ice. It was that deep and cold so you can imagine the night before we're all in this little hole you know just trying to get through the day i said to the the soldier uh, lance corporal jones something uh and i said god i said you know I'm, i was never going to join the army but here i am you know i said this is just you know how how you can do these things and he said philosophically well, he said, I joined the army to travel the world. He said, what you have to realise with the British army is that you do some really awful, shitty things, but then you get to do some amazing things. And I went, hmm, what are the amazing things? And he said, this. And it just made us all absolutely collapse with laughter for the rest of the night, probably fueled by a bit of vodka. But we were like, no, well, this is definitely not what I would have signed up for. Good job it wasn't Corporal Jones from uh, Dad's Army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you were, you, at the height of your fame at that time in the 1990s, you were still a very young man. Um, mm. You were on television, uh, as you said before, where there wasn't a huge amount of channels. So anybody who was on the main channels would be, you know, would be a household name. Everybody would know who they were. You'd be recognised. So you got that issue of being recognised all the time. 
You'd also got the issue of being a pretty attractive young man, if I remember rightly. What do you mean, pretty attractive? <laughs> you, had, you had fans in lots of different camps, as it were. <laughs> um, um, and I know that for certain. So, you know, you had all that. But you also had this thing of being on Blue Peter, which is, you know, a show for kids where you've got to be fairly responsible in a way. So the things that 20-odd-year-olds would get up to, you probably couldn't get up to in the same way, could you? You know, to me, I'm sure you, I'm sure you did. But what I mean is you've got that, that sort of that responsibility. How hard is that to sort of juggle those issues of being a young man growing up? Well, you were growing up, but what I mean is finding his way in the world, wanting to, you know, date and all that kind of thing, um, with the responsibility of Blue Peter... And also, this is a supplementary question. What response did you get from the public? And were there people who, you know, the fact that you were good looking and, you know, people, people like... What do you, you mean, were? Well, you, you still are, Tim. We know you are. You know what I mean? Did it cause you any problems? How did you cope with that? Because it's a lot, it is a lot to deal with, isn't it? Um, it was less of a problem for me because I was so happy, so excited to have an amazing job and a move to London and my family and friends were so proud and every, every literally every week something would be amazing that happened you know you'd meet Elton John or you know and he he'd be chatting to you like you know he was your best mate you know you do all the absolutely fantastic things and also great things on the show and also the show was so demanding that you, you of course you went to parties of course, you'd go to a premiere of something, but it was limited because when I joined, the show was twice a week, massive, and then it went to, it was so massive, they did a third show a week. So I was doing three live shows a week and filming around it. And when we weren't on air, which was only for a couple of months, you'd do at least two or three weeks filming for the summer expedition. Now, saying all that, um, I replaced John Leslie on it, who then obviously had a bit of a colourful career afterwards and when I left I was replaced by Richard Bacon who had a colourful career afterwards um, so you know there was still obviously temptations out there. Terribly polite, Tim. <laughs> yeah well you know I, I you know, know know both of them obviously for, for obvious reasons so um, but what I mean is that obviously you can get led astray and do different things um, and you know and not rightly or wrongly I'm not like you know raising any eyebrows about people but it was less of an issue for me I think what you realize going forward afterwards that it's always great titled you know former Blue Peter presenter X court doing Y you know it's just a great title to have isn't it um and so you were always aware that, you know, that that could be an issue that, you know, that you'd have to be aware of. But generally, the public were absolutely fantastic. You know, they were really not. Why wouldn't they be? There's no reason why you wouldn't be. You're doing a, a healthy, good show and bearing your soul every week doing ridiculous things. So as a rule, but, you know, as, as general public, you know, there's always one or two that are going to be, you know, a chip on the shoulder. With anybody on television that's successful, or the, the other person thinks is successful, you sometimes remind them about what they haven't done in their lives and they uh, will take it out on you. So on occasions, of course, you know, you're a tall, uh, good-looking, former good-looking, as you said, uh, person on, you know, on the television. You know, you occasionally get a little bit of grief, but very limited.
very limited and, and, and you hopefully have good friends around you. Did you ever feel exploited though, in the sense, I don't mean by Blue Peter, but by the fact that, you know, you're a good looking guy, you were often photographed in different ways, you were in the, you know, all the different magazines and things all the time. You had a, a really interesting, you know, good fan base around you know, young girls, I'm sure a lot of gay men, all that kind of thing. There was a lot of focus on you physically at times. Did that ever piss you off? And did you ever get quite annoyed about that? Uh, well, you probably won't believe it, but yes, of course, you're aware. And when you're in your early 20s, you know, you're really into what you're wearing and all that kind of stuff. And if you're packed and you're going out and bits and pieces and you're on Smash Hits magazine or Attitude magazine, of course, you know. But, you know, luckily, it wasn't such an issue in the sense that, you know, I was starving myself every day to try and look a certain way. It was just, you know, youthful genes at the time and, you know, you just kind of went with it. So it was, le yeah, there is a lot of pressure on those things. And also when you leave Blue Peter, and it was my decision to leave Blue Peter, you're then thinking, well, how long will this, you know, how long is this uh, hopefully snowball going to turn it, will it keep rolling down the hill and gathering momentum? Because it certainly might not. And even, you know, in, in, even when I did it, you know, back in the mid nineties, there were presenters after me or before me that had had, you know, successful careers and that it petered out. So it was always a jump. And I think that's a pressure about looking the part, making sure you do anything. But, you know, my salvation eventually came from moving to the States and um, having it, forging a completely new career. Why did you decide to leave Blue Peter at that point then? Because the, I was off, I was asked to do by the BBC Dangerfield. Sean Maguire was leaving Dangerfield. The, the exec producer had worked with me on Children's Ward, knew that I could do the part. And also they had offered me uh, the clothes show at the same time, all under, under the BBC arm. And Blue Peter understandably said, well, you know, Blue Peter is the main gig. You can, maybe you can do one. Um, but you can't do both. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. I don't want to be pigeonholed. If I've got Dangerfield, which was for two seasons, and Closure was for two seasons, so I knew I at least had 18 months, two years after Blue Peter, I'll go. Because I have to go at some point, and maybe now's not the right time, and, you know, hindsight's 2020. But it worked for me, and I did it. And that's why I left, because I felt I was still staying at the BBC. I was doing two high-profile shows, one as an actor, one as a presenter. And that's why, that's why I left when I did. You were doing these high-profile shows, but did you immediately miss being on Blue Peter? Well, I think once you left Blue Peter, having done three years intensive you know, work and training and whatever, after that, you realise that you work, you, you're, you're stepping out of you know, Hogwarts school and actually going into a proper, not that the other jobs were proper, but a job where know your lines, stand on the mark, uh, that's right, get it done and you move on. And th there was very, there was less hand ho holding on these things. And that wasn't even an issue with closure. That was absolutely fine. I know how to present with my eyes closed and uh, somebody gives me a script and I think it's half good, or I'll make it half good and we do it. With acting, you know, you kind of, you know, Dangerfield was the, big drama for the BBC at the time. It was, you know, Sunday nights, or when it moved to Friday nights, it was a big, you know, Nigel Avalent, you know, it was the big thing and I was paying Marty Dangerfield. So that, that, that was, you know, for quite a few years, you know, if you're on the ascent uh, in, in a 
show busy type career you're constantly challenging yourself you know whatever you're doing you're doing something new with a big microscope looking at you at that point did you because you were doing two things you were presenting you were acting obviously you like both in in different to different different degrees but did you because we'll talk in a minute about going to america and all the rest of it but were you starting to formulate in your mind that actually you preferred one more than the other yeah i i think that you know i've subsequently been offered um jobs uh, acting which i've turned down because they just wanted a name who could act rather than the best actor for that job um and i i and presenting i just love i just know what I, I i enjoy presenting i look forward to presenting something whereas acting you know i could be walking around the house with a script rolled up in my hand going oh well what am i doing here you know and getting into it so, saying that one of my favorite jobs over nearly 30 years of being in the business was I did a national tour for six months of uh, Bouncers, John Gobber's Bouncers, that was produced by the Ambassadors Theatre Group, but with whole truck. So you can't get better than that. And Bouncers, if anybody's ever seen it, is only four actors on stage with no set for, you know, a, a, an hour and a half with a, a, an interval. Uh, and that really tested me. But again, I was blessed with a fantastic director and fantastic cast that we're still all friends with today, years later. Um, and I really enjoyed that because you really felt like you were learning your craft. And even six months later, you know, and you can imagine how many shows, you know, six months of a tour and you were doing eight shows a week. You know, it was quite a few shows. Even towards the end, you were really enjoying it because it was such good writing. You obviously got the presenting and the acting talent and all the rest of it, but you've also embarked on other things you embarked on a very interesting comedic play about blue peter which you put on at the uh, edinburgh fringe a few years ago which was uh, really interesting because you got quite a lot of the old blue peter cast together didn't you and i know you'd like yeah. to do more with that wouldn't you you were talking you were hinting at one point trying to make it into some kind of film or tv film or whatever which would be really interesting because blue peter connects with we all we've all got a blue peter presenter that we have in our mind and it connects with so many different generations, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But it certainly connects to generations up to a certain age now. I'm not sure it, it resonates as much with uh, a wider audience. Um, still doing great guns on children's BBC. But yeah, but I had a, I was a huge fan of The Trip, which is Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. And basically, if you've ever seen it, they play themselves, but a heightened version for comedic value. So Steve Coogan is always going on about the fact that he'll be remembered for more than Alan Partridge. And Rob Brydon, who's his mate, goes, yeah, but you probably will be remembered for that. you know." And I think Blue Peter presenters are seen as these icons or idols to certain people, you know, and and I decided if I could get a play that was written for Edinburgh Film Festival, which featured some of them, that would be absolutely amazing. So the first, it was a bit like the opening credits of the A-Team where they go around and bust the one out of the psychiatric ward and then the other one faces seducing some woman by a pool and they throw them all in the van and then they start driving off to do this, you know, whatever adventure they're going on. It was a bit like that. So I rang Peter Purvis and said, listen, I'm not going to do it unless you can be in there. Uh, and I knew him a little bit. I'd done some filming with him on a couple of other things. And uh, he's such a lovely, he's the Rolls-Royce presenters. He's just such a lovely guy. And he said, yeah, I, I, I will definitely do it. I said, well, I can't pay much, but it'll be great fun. And he said, yeah, it's not even written. He said, no, I'm up for it. And I said, well, that makes it easy for me to go to everybody else. So I got Janet Ellis, who is a dear friend who did it. And she was fantastic. 
and Valerie Singleton makes an appearance. I was working with all these greats. We, had, we also had Mark Curry and uh, Peter Duncan in it. And we put it on up in Edinburgh and it got huge publicity. You know, every broadsheet um, did features on it. We were on Five Live and various bits and pieces. Didn't make any money. In fact, lost quite a bit of money. But I'm glad that I did it because it was something different for me producing something and you know having a different cap on your head and subsequently out of that you know we we, we had a great time up there and uh, Peter Purvis and I was talking to Valerie Singleton two days ago so you know it was great to work with these huge icons and and after having worked with them for months you realize they are icons but they're just presenters and people like you and I and you know they have their foibles and some good bits and bad bits and you know they were all happy to be working but it was a hell of I, that, you know that, that to pull off to get Blue Peter presenters, ex-Blue Peter presenters, to be in a play talking about Blue Peter, acting in it, and also to play a heightened version of themselves. So Mark Curry had to play the showbiz slightly over the top, open a fridge door, would have to perform in front of any light that comes on. Janet Ellis, you know, first time she came on stage is bringing a, a handbag on and getting all these miniature vodka bottles out that she'd stolen from the uh, hotel bar. You know, all these kind of fun little things. Were you, were you in it as well? I was in it as well. I was in it as well. Um, just topped and tailed it just because I was there anyway producing it. It was good to have we another didn't, we, didn't have an, we didn't have an extra sort of big version of you then. There wasn't a... You, you, we didn't... You, you didn't... You didn't cut. You didn't characterise your character then? Well, I did in the sense that, yeah, normally in a, I was in the scene at the beginning and a couple of scenes at the end just to top and tail it. And then the rest of the time I was just backstage, like the producers, counting the, the ticket sales that weren't making enough money. But I, what I wanted to do was make it as fun as possible. And the, the, the whole set was just a pretty dog-eared, down-at-heel green room where the presenters would all come in independently of each other. And there was a cinema screen behind that would put up at various times things, but they would put up the picture of the presenter when they were fresh-faced on the Blue Peter, as in the, the, the actual photo that they would have signed the Blue Peter. And then over that, they would have a letter that was written at the time of that presenter joining, because Biddy Baxter did a whole book about fan letters, um, slagging them off, you know, like Mark Curry being slagged off. Why, oh, why, oh, why have we got this ginger idiot polluting? And then he'd come through the door and it would get a laugh straight away. Mine was, and it's a genuine letter, which, uh, from a sergeant major who'd said, uh, Dear Mr. Vincent, particularly enjoy you, uh, your escapades with the British Army at the moment. I say this as somebody that's a retired Sergeant Major. Would it be possible to get a picture of you possibly in the shower? So then I'd come out and, you know, you get a laugh straight away. And I, I kind of pretended that I was this kind of in love with myself type of person, you know, just kind of, you know, obviously a big stretch for me. <laughs> Two big British soaps are celebrating birthdays this autumn, and we're joining the original stars to reminisce about the beginnings of both. It's back to Beckendale in 1972, as we sit down for some memories of Yorkshire favourite Emmerdale Farm, with none other than Frederick Pine, who played Matt Skillback. Donald Bavisock said to Kevin, I wanted to write a series because we were opening up daytime television about a farm. And he said, well, I don't know anything about a farm. So they said to him, we'll come up to Yorkshire and live for two or three weeks and find out. <laughs> it did come off the shelf and it did start. And Peggy said, my name, Matt, 
was the first word of the series because she said, Matt, do you know all those new people over at Pickerskills or something something similar to that? And it, that was Arthur Pentelow and his daughter, Mr Wilkes, because the daughter came riding over on a horse and she said, do you know those people? So my, I've always been quite proud that Matt was the very first word of the whole bloody series. <laughs> And it's still going, still going how many years later? 50 years later or something. Meanwhile, 90s soap upstart Hollyoaks is marking 25 years. And we've a special interview with someone who was there right at the very start. I think it would have felt more of a pressure if I'd had a character that I felt represented my colour badly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it was very easy because she's this affluent, middle-class, aspirational character and she defies the stereotypes. So it was very easy for me to play Maddie and to be very happy with how they'd written her. Yes, Yasmin Bannerman, who played Maddie Parker, is our special guest as we celebrate a quarter of a century of the team-based soap. That's Emmerdale and Hollyoaks Originals, coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about you going to America because that's, that was quite a leap. But did, the, uh, did your stint in one of Britain's favourite soap operas come before that or after that? Before it, wasn't it? Before you yeah, that came before it. That was... Uh... Yeah, so the year 2000 was a seminal year for me. I'd left Blue Peter. Um, I was doing various other shows, um, and uh, including Fully Booked, which was the Saturday morning equivalent of going live. I was doing various things. And I was asked by the BBC to be uh, the host from Wales for the Millennium coverage. It's 36 hours of the BBC covering, you know, going into the Millennium. And I was the... The, the, the host from Wales, so they kept throwing to me. It was a fantastic gig to do. I was, I was in Cardiff at the Manic Street Preachers Stadium doing, you know, here we go and all the countdowns. So I loved that. But off the back of that, I was going into Emmerdale for a year. Um, and again, I, I enjoyed certain processes of it and certain bits, but it, it, it's very much uh, a factory, uh, a creative factory. Um, and again, you, you, you get there, you hit, hit your, your mark and you do it and that's it and you move on. Luckily for me, um, I'd only been there maybe two or three weeks um, staying in a hotel and looking for somewhere to rent. And uh, a couple of the actors all shared a house together um, uh, and they invited me to say, look, we have a spare bedroom. Do you want to move in to the, the spare bedroom? Um, and I said, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So for pretty much most of the year that I was on Emmerdale, I shared a, a, a house with uh, Lisa Riley, um, Mark Charnock, um, and uh, a couple of other actors that played Paddy, you know, and Dominic Brooks, the various people. Some of, some of the big Emmerdale names. Though. Yeah, they're all, well, Lisa's back in it now. So I kind of felt that because it was a home from home, really. You know, I was living in Yeadon for uh, on and off for a year. So it was great fun for that. But I don't really connect in the sense of really knowing my character really didn't really do much, you know, it was a vet that, you know. <laughs> you, 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 were, you were totty, weren't you, really? You were sexy vets, that's what you were. Well, <laughs> yeah, as you pointed out, my, my looks were fading at that point, but sexy-ish, sexy-ish vet. <laughs> but, but you didn't have to, I mean, I was, I was interviewing, and um, the listeners will hear it in, very soon, actually, I was interviewing uh, Frederick Pine, who played Matt Skilbeck in Everdell, oh, wow. from the very beginning, 1972. And he says, right at the very beginning, they were really thrust into the whole thing of having to deal properly with the animals. You know, they, they'd have to, you know, help a, a calf to you know, be born and, and, and sheep shearing and, you know, really throwing it at the deep end, which apparently they can't do anymore now because different rules and laws and whatever. 
did, how much of that did you have to do as a vet? Did you have to put your hand up something or? <laughs> as a vet. As a vet. Um, yeah, Kate, I think I had to give a, a sheep an injection once, which was just, you know, just um, just water in the, in, in the syringe. I think that's about it, really. I think the most difficult thing I had to do, or really I didn't have to do, I just had to lie there, is that part of my storyline when I was leaving was that I, I think I'd been kicked by a horse or something and was lying prostrate on the floor. And Paddy, Dominic Brunt, had to give me mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation and we'd shared a house together for the year so that was slightly uncomfortable at the time thinking oh right you know so uh, <laughs> that was probably the, the most taxing that I had to do. Well most of your storyline was was jumping into bed with, with different women wasn't it? Wasn't that part of it? Was yeah it? there was a bit of that yeah 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 <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> I mean obviously There's not much to do in the Dales. <laughs> no absolutely obviously uh, you know a big a big show to be on uh, Emmerdale and um, you know, again, you're thrust back into the into the spotlight kind of thing. But was that was that was that different? I mean, obviously, it was different because you're acting. But what I'm saying by that point, how were you? I mean, were you still? Do you think? Do you think people were watching you on Emmerdale and thinking that's Tim Vincent from Blue Peter, as opposed to the vet in Emmerdale kind of thing? Yeah, I think that's I bet that's always going to be the case, you know, and, and even more so now, especially with soaps, you know, there's Shane Ritchie, there's loads of people there, the people you would know from something else, and they either make it their own or they don't, you know, and, you know, Michelle um, Collins, you know, moved from EastEnders to Coronation Street and thing, and it's just how you gel with everybody at the time and how it goes. Um, but it was a fun process. It's just not something that... Um, I think if you, as an actor, you make a decision to either stay in the soap or not for a, a number of years, because there's obviously major benefits for being in the yeah, soap. But absolutely. a lot of the major benefits, you, apart from the money, you can't um, take advantage of at the time because you're working. I remember lots of times that I missed presenting opportunities that have been um, given to me because they didn't know what the schedule would be for the show. And that they'd know that my storyline would be peripheral. But if you're written into a scene where you're in the back of shot in, in the wool pack. You could be there for two or three days, just sitting in the back of scene thinking, oh my God, I could have been doing this. You know, it's very restrictive. And you either embrace that or realize that that's not necessarily going to work for me. So do you think when Emmerdale um, celebrates its 50th birthday in two years time, and you'll be two, it's 50 in two years time, of course, Emmerdale's hurtling towards 52. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think your, your, your period in Emmerdale will be highlighted as one of the, 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 the special periods of, uh, of Emmerdale? I think they'll probably do a special. I think they'll probably do an hour and a half special. And if they can afford me, I will deign to do an interview from Mauritius. And we will talk through all the women that I jumped into bed with and the ones that I wanted to jump into bed with. Okay, great stuff. Now... That gets us on to the fact that around that period, was it just after that period that you decided to make the leap and go to America? Yes. Um, and I did it kind of through the back door, really. A lot of presenters, you know, I've never had big agents that have been successful at the right time, that have opened up doors and given, got me parts, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It was, I've always kind of been like a workaround. And I got the, the gig in uh, the States um, by another person that's absolutely fantastic, who's a, a titan in television, a guy called Richard Wolfe, 
who at the time was running um, one of the channels, and he bought the rights to access Hollywood and said, it's very American-centric, but I want a British presenter um, to just, you know, make it a little bit more palatable to the British audience. And he, he asked Kate Garraway from uh, Daybreak or whatever it's called now, and myself to, to co-host it together, which basically meant once a week, we get together in the studio and do our links uh, and, and do the links in and out of all the stuff. And that was it, really enjoyed it. But being a bit tenacious, um, they flew us all out to LA to go to the studio to see the show being made before we started doing ours. Well, you can imagine, you know, you're actually flying out to Los Angeles and limousines are being picked to take, pick, pick you up and take you to these amazing hotels to stay. And then the next morning, you know, there's cars taking you to the lot and golf carts, you know, taking you past uh, Jay Leno's parking spot. You know, our studio is where, you know, some of the biggest shows, you know, the Letterman show, all these big shows, you know, absolutely, you know, all these absolutely just gobsmacking to see. It's like being in Hollywood, you know, the TV series, just wow. And um, people have said, oh, you look a little bit American anyway, you know, on that type of TV, so you've got a British accent. And I think it just gelled with the producers. And Rob Silverstein, who is a fantastic, uh, huge guy. His parking spot was next to Jay Leno's to give you an idea of how powerful he was. He was the overall showrunner for the show. Um, asked, asked me eventually, because I, I, we all went back to, to London and there were occasions when I'd have to interview stars that were over to help them out. Like Val Kilmer was over and I'd go and interview him. Uh, or Celine Dion and all these people. And then they said, look, there might be a position coming up in New York. Would you consider it? And I said, yes. Yeah. So, they tried me out in Venice Film Festival, uh, which is a really prestigious film festival. Uh, and they said, let's see how you are, you know, out there on the red carpet and we'll see how you go. And one of my, and whilst I was there, I interviewed Tom Cruise, um, various big stars that were out there. But the, one of the interviews that I was doing was, um, and it was supposed to be just a run of the mill interview, it was with John Travolta and Scarlett Johansson. And it was one of those moments where I thought, you know, I am a guy from Wrexham, but I am here in this stunning hotel overlooking the canals in Venice, being not paid because they were trying me out, but, you know, being flown out and all this stuff. Uh, and the producer that I had at the time uh, was like, listen, the show works on moments. We need moments. Everybody's going to get a chance if they're on the big entertainment shows to have a quick chat with all these stars. We've got to sit down and we need moments. So, you know, Let's see how it goes. Um, John Travolta was absolutely lovely uh, and turned up early, you know. So he was actually there when the camera guys were just altering the lights. And I said, hello, I'm Tim, I'm going to be interviewing you. And he said, great. And Scarlett Johansson came in. And I interviewed, asked them about the film, whatever it was, and bits and pieces. And I thought, there's been no moments here. So I just said at the end of it, I said, listen, listen. I said, I'm from North Wales. I can't dance. I can't dance unless I'm drunk. And the only time you see me dance is really doing, you know, a bit at the end of a wedding, you know, when nobody's looking. Can you give me any tips? And bless him, he stood up and he said, I can't have that. He said, and he ushered Scarlett Johansson up. And he said, get in the middle. So he put his hands around my hands and then Scarlett Johansson's hands. And we basically just did a couple of little moves and shimmies around. And he said, look, just feel the rhythm. You're just going to get in Scarlett Johansson was giggling. And that was it. And immediately after said, thank you so much for everything. And, da, 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 da. and as we came out, because we were then rushing to go and interview um, some other big bloody star. 
the, the producer went, that's a moment. That's a, you're going to be a star. That's a moment. And of course it was. And then maybe because I was a bit of a buffoon in how I interviewed people and just kind of, because I hadn't grown up in that area and because I had a different accent, I could kind of get away with asking various questions to massive stars that didn't take umbrage at it. Uh, and it worked, you know, and a lot of these stars are completely bored in these kind of junkets. They want somebody to be a little bit different. I think it's changed now. It's so sterile. But at the time when I was doing it, you know, it was fantastic fun. You were taught to dance by uh, by Danny from Greece then, basically. Yeah, with Scarlett <laughs> Johansson stepping on my toes. <laughs> you know, they love the British accent, don't they? And it's sort of, yeah. that's always something that pulls them in. And they they forgive you for anything if you if you speak nicely in a British accent, of course, and you've got your Welsh tilt as well, you know. Yeah, well, they, you, you can't underestimate how important that accent was at the time, because if you put it into juxtaposition, that was in like 2005, Simon Cowell was the biggest name on entertainment, you know, with uh, the X Factor and all the bits and pieces that he was doing, American Idol. He was, you know, the British, the British accent, and obviously, you know, Harry and Wills were of an age where they were on front covers of magazines. They were British again, you know, all these British things. So they love that. And they used to say to me, he said, we love the way you say premiere. Don't change it. And I was like, well, how else can you say it? Premiere, you know, so you do, you do it your way. And, you know, almost immediately, because the show is so big, it's six nights a week, still is. Um, it's on seven o'clock on NBC. It's a massive show. You know, within months, I was at the Oscars on the red carpet interviewing Clint Eastwood, who was hoping to get, you know, be, get another Oscar nod. You know, it was just surreal, really. You'd be on a private jet with the Victoria's Secret Angels flying across the country or on a yacht with Bruce Willis in Cannes. You know, it was just absolutely bonkers. New to distinct nostalgia. Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story. What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you? A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson. Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life. Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock! Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Matt Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Listen here on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or go to distinctnostalgia.com. we got to do something about your voice, kid. We're going to snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Uh, louder. Ah. Uh, louder. Uh. Rock. Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease. And pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. 
Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Take 23. Distinct Comedy presents... Oh, hello. I'm uh, I'm Jolien Karp. I'm, uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh, hello. Experience a day in the life of voiceover guy. Take 13. I'm playing a pirate. Are you sure you're in the right place? Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd. Take 24. Aha! Splice the main brace, me hearties. Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on. Get it? Oh, good. Let's treat that one as a run-through. Aha! Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast. Okay, then. Can we do a series of less piratical wild ahas in threes and we'll splice them on? That okay, Paul? The trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover. Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee. New and original comedy. Softer. Aha! Well, actually, on reflection, I'm not happy with them. I like what we had, all rough and piratey. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or I might have to give you a black spot. That was blood out of a stone. Won't use him again. What did you take from being in that world? I mean, you obviously enjoyed it to an extent, but did... I mean, you came back to Britain in the end, but was there anything about it that annoyed you as well? I mean, did you find it sort of... Was there a, you know, because there's a falseness about some of it, isn't there? And did that, you know, did, did you, you did your, your sort of down-to-earth Britishness see through it, as it were? I don't think it was the down-to-edge Britishness um, that saw through whatever it was. It, it, I think any presenter, any journalist would see it the same way. All those situations are controlled. And this is not a new creation you know going back to David Niven and Cary Grant publicists were very important you know very very important when I was doing that show every day and living in the states living in New York you know which in itself you know I lived on 51st and 8th right in Manhattan I had my own office in 30 Rock you know where we would film every day it was bonkers is that it was the advent of television that's when access was at its biggest you know those shows there's a plethora of them entertainment tonight extra e you know e tonight all those shows you know big shows because you know they were voraciously eating up anything that could be taken as show business and you know there's so many movie stars out there that are happy to talk about stuff but you would sit there and have publicists saying don't ask this and you must make sure you know if you do that um you must ask about this and it's purely got to be about the film and you and you know the way it would work is Rob Silverstein, the guy that was the uh, the showrunner, the big set producer, the grand fromage of the show. You'd hardly hear of him, but he'd say, listen, tomorrow you're interviewing, let's say, I don't know, George Clooney. He was in a restaurant two nights ago with Danny DeVito, drunk. So, you know, and Danny DeVito went on The View the next morning, still a little bit tipsy. You've got to ask him about that. And of course, the publicist's like, you can't ask about that. You know, it's got to be about the film. And I said, well, Rob has, and sometimes he'd come out, you know, he'd get involved and say, you know, and then other times he'd say, see how you feel about it, because you're always playing verbal tennis. Most of the big stars knew exactly what was going on and you play along. But there's, it's changed over the years. It used to be that our show would have our own suites in whichever hotel in New York. 
and Extra would have their own suite next door and George Clooney would arrive and the publicist would pop their head around the door about 10 minutes before saying, George is in the building, I'll be all ready. And then George would come in, we'd mic him up and then we'd start the interview and have five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you go. Now they have their own setup, they have their own suites. You are outside the door, um, like lots of the other hosts of different shows and you'd wait to go in, you'd be mic'd, well, you wouldn't even be mic'd up, the mic would be hanging above you. They'd say your five minutes starts, no, they're five. And they would know exactly by the time you ask one or two questions, they'd stretch out the answers and that would be it. You know, there'd be no chance to get anything. And we're not talking anything scurrilous, but you know, something that's a bit different. A prime example of how it works is I, I was flown to Dubai to interview Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible 3, Ghost Protocol, whichever one was set in Dubai. And at the time he was still married to Katie Holmes they had Surrey, which was their baby, and he was about to turn 50. So, you know, I was flying out there and the three must-haves that I had to get were, he's got to ask, he's got to talk about Surrey, you know, even if it's a casual reference, he's got to talk about uh, turning 50 and something about Katie. Just, and, and the show works on, because it's a nightly show, they will have held back stuff on the show as they're editing it through the day because Tim Vincent's going to be in Dubai and it's going to be satellite fed over. Even if I say, how's Surrey? And he goes, I'm not talking about that. They still know there's a section in the show that find out what uh, our Brit Tim Vincent asked Tom Cruise about Surrey. Doesn't matter that he didn't give a war and peace answer. You know, there's still a segment. So when we came to do the show, his production company are doing that because he owns the rights to um, Mission Impossible or co-owns the rights. So, all the suites with all the cameramen and all the sound guys were his people under his buck. And I was taken in with the producer and sat down uh, and he came in and, you know, ready to go and asked him a couple of questions about the film. And then I came out with the brilliant, in my mind, killer question was, and it was fantastic. I said, listen, I said, you're nearly 50. I said, does Katie ever see you around the house when you're thumbing through a script and going, no more stunts. You've got Surrey to worry about. And he laughed out loud and he said, well, Katie says, sometimes says this and you know, Surrey's too young to, but we enjoy our, and I thought, fantastic. You know, I could collapse now with a heart attack. It doesn't matter, I've got everything I need. Two minutes later, the voice behind me from the cameraman that's filming Tom Cruise, not even the one that's filming me says, uh, we've got a technical problem here. I, can we start again? And, you know, Tom's many people around him are going, uh, that's not possible. Uh, we've got to go to inside tonight because they've got a live feed to do and da, da, da. And I'm like, well, this isn't my fault, you know, and we've got a live feed that we've got to feed our stuff to. And Tom just looked at me and he said, do not worry, I will come back and make this happen. Because he knew it was great publicity for him but the other thing that's very interesting, that's slight inside track that I raised my eyebrows about and I thought, well, that's very clever of Tom. What he did before he left my room to go and do four or five other shows that was as big shows like we were doing, was take his top off and put a completely new top on and then walk into the next room. Because he knew that when we all released our stuff about Tom's uh, on the set of Dubai talking about the latest thing, his death-defying stunts, they all go out on many shows, CNN, Fox News, NBC, Access Hollywood, and he will look the same in all of them because he's had the same outfit on 
because he's been interviewed over a day or so doing it. So he changed his outfit so that when it looked on CNN, he had a red top on. When it was Access, he had a blue top on. And it was just bonkers. You're thinking, this guy, that's why, you know, he was the number one box office male star for over 10 years. It strikes me then that where you had the most fun was where you could be a little bit adventurous with the, the, the questions and, and sort of um, turn things on the head a bit. And you had to be really in order to get the best out of the interviews because there were so many restrictions. But presume- yeah, there was. But um, Bruce Willis was a prime example. When I first started on the show and I'd only been on the show a couple of weeks, I'd moved to New York. They'd put me in a beautiful hotel. Um, but I, I, you know, that's it. You know, you were going in. Uh, early into Rockefeller Center in the morning and the Today Show, which everybody knows about is the Today Show is the big breakfast show where, you know, the Matt Lauer was the host and Katie Couric and all these massive stars um, was also part of the NBC family. So sometimes they'd have Tony Bennett on or John Bon Jovi and I'd have to go and interview them after they come off air for our show in the evening. So you were running around and one day the the producer that I'd been with in New York, who was this go-getting uh, producer and she said listen I've heard that Bruce Willis as a favor to a friend of his is going to turn up at an agricultural fair just outside of New York we're going to go there and see if we can grab him for a quick two-way because he's just flown back from Los Angeles where his ex-wife Demi Moore has married Ashton Kutcher who was a much younger version of Bruce Willis let's see if we can go and get a reaction well, I'm like, fine, okay, well, this is what we do every day. But of course, we're actually doorstepping him a bit, you know. He's still in the public arena, he's turned up to be publicly, but it was still a bit like it wasn't arranged through his publicist. So we did get him, and I was walking along saying, Bruce, hi, Bruce, Access Hollywood. Bruce, can you tell us you've just got back from LA, how was the wedding? And he just, and I innocently said it, and he just looked at me, gave me an absolute death stare, and walked off. And I was kind of like left there with a, you know, singed microphone thinking, what happened there? Well, the show loved it. They actually played that the next night, say, look what happened when our Brit Tim Vincent asked Bruce Willis this. And they actually stopped the footage and put lightning from his eyes to me when I asked the question. So that was all fun. That was it. And thinking, well, this is how it all rolls here, doesn't it? About two or three days, maybe a week later, I, I was talking to you know the producer and said right this week you're off to do this you're going to do Britney Spears and then you're coming back to it and you're going to have a sit-down interview with Bruce Willis and I was like you're sorry I said yeah you're going to do a sit-down interview with Bruce Willis about his new film I think it was called 16 Blocks or something I said you do realize we've just ran that piece where I audaciously asked him about a wedding you know when it wasn't pre-arranged said, yeah yeah so I decided that you know I'll have a go at trying to be funny with him and when he eventually came in, you know, you get like eight minutes, 10 minutes with him, you know, and he came in and he sat down and everybody said, you're ready. And he didn't, he, apart from saying hi, you know, he didn't say anything else. And he sat there and I started the interview and everybody said, yeah, right, action. I said, listen, Bruce, I know we got off to a bad start, but I'm a massive fan of yours and I absolutely love your career and some of the career choices that you've made over the years can we start again and I can ask you some proper serious questions. He used about 30 seconds just to go, hmm, hmm, sure. Already three minutes into my eight, nine minutes that I had with him. And I went, okay, do you wear boxer shorts or briefs? <laughs> he gave about, I don't know, 10 seconds and I could feel the room getting smaller with all his publicists. And then he burst out laughing because <laughs> nobody would ever done that to him. And subsequently, 
over and they didn't this is what frustrated me the show didn't use that bit i thought that was a great bit to use but subsequently be it in you know sundance film festival or latterly in Cannes, sometimes there's a myriad of these presenters and sometimes we're behind the red car you know red carpet behind the barrier going bruce 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 he would always come up to me and he wouldn't talk to anybody else and then he'd move off again and people would look at me going can you slept with him What's, what's, why has he come over to you? You know, and I'll be like, no, he's just a really nice guy. Yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting about what you're saying to me, it strikes me that your, your time on Blue Peter actually helped you a lot in this job. Because you, in Blue Peter, you have to do, you have to think uh, on the hoof uh, with different things. And it strikes me that that's what, exactly what you were doing with, the, with this role in many ways, in terms of you having to get round issues and barriers and things in different inventive ways and because you were a brit who could be a bit cheeky occasionally it helped you through so i think there's a direct link between blue peter and what you were doing there yeah and while i was out in the states um i ended up starting to do other shows um um primarily for nbc but i did one for cbs but the show that i another show that i did was called phenomenon which was basically american idol for magicians and I hosted, it was an eight part live series in the evenings. And the producers flew over from um, England to, to, to exec produce it. And um, I, I had the phone call in a meeting and I, I got the job. And uh, after a few weeks, I said to them, you know, why did I get this job? Because we've never worked together before. And, you know, usually it's because you've worked with somebody, they know that oh, we need a safe pair of hands. And she just went, well, you're on the network. I wanted somebody that, because this is a live show with lots of acts and tricks and magic tricks that could go wrong. I needed somebody that could ultimately think on their feet and go with whatever happens. And you came from Children's BBC and Blue Peter, so I knew without even meeting you that you would at least be able to do that. And that's consequently, that happened actually. I had to break a fight up on that show. One of the the, the two judges was uh, Uri Geller, or Uri Geller, as he was called at the time, and Chris Angel, who was this rock and roll magician that, you know, did, did all kinds of weird and wonderful things and, you know, was like the star of all that kind of thing. And he challenged one of the contestants who uh, didn't like it and stormed towards him in his, in his judge's position. And I had somebody screaming in my ear, the producer saying, go and break it up, don't let him hit him. So I had to wade over him pull this guy back and all I could remember thinking is we're live and I've got patent shiny shoes on with no grip I'm going to go over like a bar of soap here but I didn't I managed to pull him back and say we're going to a break we'll see you after the break and of course because the show was quite spectacular anyway everybody thought it was set up but it wasn't and she went see there you go you thought about it we did it and I was like yeah okay but that had something like a million hits on YouTube the next day it was ridiculous. I was gonna say did it, did it get quite a lot of publicity that you know well it did and it didn't because you know that that kind that show believe it or not and people always go no and I said we used to have celebrity guests on you know to sit on this sofa to watch these fantastic acts going on and making you know somebody played Russian roulette with a, a stud gun or poisonous snakes, you know, all these kind of making a Ferrari disappear right in front of you. So you'd have all these guests, and one of which was Kim Kardashian, who would sit on the sofa. And because they were like, it was this type of show, they decided to put a very mild electric uh, current in the sofa. So when they wanted somebody to have a really big reaction, somebody, whoever had the job of pressing the red button, would give a short shock to people. So they would go, ah! 
and come and kind of sit up on the sofa when something had happened. So, you know, there was all these type of things happening. So me breaking up a fight, people just thought, well, you know, it, only five minutes ago, he introduced somebody that made a, a Ferrari disappear, you know, it's part and parcel. But from the horse's mouth, it wasn't planned. It was genuine and it could have gone anywhere. Now, you mentioned a few people already, the people, you, big names that you, you managed to interview. But there were so many more, weren't there? There were tons. I mean, you, you know, you could write a book, really, couldn't you? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I probably will at some point because you, you get to see them in, you know, you, apart from your five, six, ten minutes interview time, in certain situations, you're, you're hanging out with these people because you're doing it on set or you're doing it in Cannes or you're doing it on a yacht or you're doing it somewhere different. You're on the back of a, a bus doing the interview. So you do kind of get an idea of some people quite well. But my, I remember for me that was a very big learning curve and making sure setting your brain ready for subsequent interviews but i had to interview robert de niro who i was a massive fan of i don't know who isn't a massive fan of his for certainly of his early work is just amazing you know just amazing now what i'm about to tell you is absolutely verbatim the truth and it'll make more sense to you that anytime you ever see robert de niro being interviewed subsequently on anything he is never interviewed on his own he's always interviewed with somebody either the producer or a co-star because he's not a great interviewee he, if, if you ask him a question that can possibly be given a one-word answer he will um so you you know and a lot of presenters just go oh well you know well tell us what it was like being on you know the set off and in you know, most present most um actors or movie stars will go well it was this and just go with it because it's publicity whereas he'll go hmm you know, because there's no real answer. You haven't asked a real question. And the first time I had to interview him was with Martin Scorsese and himself for Raging Bull. It was the re-release of Raging Bull. I think it was either 20 or 25 years later, it was being re-released. Now, the story behind Raging Bull is that Martin Scorsese didn't want to make that film. You know, it was a boxing film. It wasn't the kind of thing that he wanted to do. De Niro had the book about it and kept pitching it to him. Scorsese ended up in hospital for some minor operation, but had to be in there for a couple of days. De Niro turned up with this dog-eared manuscript and said, please read this. He read it and said, okay, let's make it. They made it. De Niro put on something like 35 pounds and then lost it again, you know, as part of the character's arc. Uh, and then at the Oscars, it won, I think, three Oscars. So my first question to Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese sitting down was, can you tell me how you felt standing on that podium, clutching the three Oscars after the Herculean efforts that you had to make this film? It must have been such a, you know, amazing moment for you. And Robert De Niro just went, yeah, it was okay. And I just froze thinking, I've got 15 minutes with you. You've just used up my best question with one statement. And luckily, Martin Scorsese looked at Robert De Niro, kind of went, ha! Yeah, well, and then answered all the questions that you think you would. Now, over the years, I did Robert De Niro a lot because he had Tribeca Film Festival. I lived in New York. You were there all the time. He had a restaurant. He opened Nobu 57, which I went to. So I started to get to know him a little bit. And he used to call me uh, the most tolerable of all the journalists because I would ask him relatively less boring questions than everybody else. And he would insist that I would do the first interviews to kind of warm him up a bit. You know, 10, 15 years ago, I was the Brit that he liked. You met a lot of people who you'd watched, you'd seen in films and things like that. And, 
you know, were there people you were sort of really surprised at that they were, you know, their persona, you would have thought, you've thought, oh, they're a bit, they're a bit miserable, but actually they were really nice. And vice versa, you know, the other side, were the people who you were disappointed with? Because you're interviewing so many people and that was a really intensive period of, you know, we were on air six nights a week, three years of doing that daily, living in Manhattan and flying off all over the place. You, you meet 99% of every star, you know. There's a couple that, you know, unfortunately I never got to interview like Al Pacino, but you pretty much, you know, you're Dustin Hoffman's and all these kind of stuff, Will Smith's, everybody. Most of them, you know, you might have moments where you think, mm, well, that didn't go particularly well, but you're only, you only really remember the ones that pretend to be every man. You know, they have this friendly boyish or girlish persona that, you know, and then they're not. But that's rare because, you know, most people are there, they're there to promote something. But most people, you know, pretty much were lovely and the and the and the ones you know the british actors and actresses are great you know you mcgregor i haven't seen in probably a decade but what a nice guy you know and and you know at the end of the interviews would sidle over to you while you're packing up your stuff and say oh you know what are you up to and i said oh i've got to go and do an interview I've got to go and do an interview about such and such film next and he went is it any good and i said no not really and he said what do you do in that situation i said well i'll just bullshit a bit and he said yeah, he said, I've had to do that with some of my films. <laughs> so you, you, people know what the process is. I think sometimes they're a bit alienated from the whole thing. And that sometimes happens with rock stars, you know, because they're on private planes. They come in, they do the interview, and the next time they're seeing anybody is with another screaming fan. But I went on tour with Beyonce and, um, you know, and, and went out and went to various American cities with her and took part in the prayer circle before you go before she went on stage, you get to see the, it's absolutely amazing, the, the height of fame sometimes. You mentioned there some of the British stars, because there has been quite a lot of British actors who've, you know, been big over here and then decided, let's try things out in the States. I interviewed the other week, uh, Jack Davenport, of course, uh, resides in the States now and has done quite a lot of films. And, you know, the, my favourite one that he made was Talent of Mr Ripley with, with Jude Law and Matt Davis yeah. back in 1999, which was, a fabulous film. What's your take on how the Brits sort of survive in Hollywood? Because what tends to seem, seem seems to happen is they go to Hollywood. We might see them in a few films here and there, um, but we in the UK don't get to know much about where they go. You're thinking, where where's that person gone? And actually, a lot of them have gone to the states and made bloody good careers. Actually, and done really really well. But it doesn't get conveyed back over here. You know what I mean? which I think mm. is a shame, really, because they're doing, doing great things, you know. So, I mean, you mentioned Ewan McGregor. I mean, did you come across a fair few uh, Brits, you know, who were doing well in America? Yeah, you, you look at, well, you've only got to look at Netflix, you know. There's so many productions out there, and, and a lot of them are box sets. So, you know, they might be in Tennessee for 12 months filming back-to-back -back two seasons of Living Dead, Revolving Head Twice, or whatever it's called. So, so yeah, you came across... But, you know, generally... the our show was such a big show you you know you do a, you do an interview with Michael Caine or as you just mentioned Jude Law so you kind of knew what they were doing but Jude Law I interviewed early on when I moved out there and he, at the time he was just on a roll of massive films you know back to back to back to back to back but it was also the time when he'd slept with his nanny so 
you know, he was on a highway to nothing. You know, there was no way he, he could keep the ascent that he was doing. But, you know, I think Brits do well because they're talented. And he, of course, was going back right back full circle. He was in another uh, Granada daytime soap opera called Families, wasn't he? And he's probably the same age as you. He's also hurtling towards 50 as well. So it, we, maybe we should all have a, a, a triple party between the three of us I think and get so. Emmerdale to sponsor it. There's lots of people hurtling towards 50, actually. It's, it's quite amazing. I think it was, a, it was an interesting, interesting year, 1972-73. Um, there must have now, been a blackout. Uh, <laughs> well, there was all the power cuts, of course, at that time. Was there? Yeah, big power cut. Distinct drama. Fresh and original. Mr. Fenn, I assure you that I have not come here to murder you however tempted I may be. A terse 40-minute drama set in a US correctional facility. Oh, I see. You wish to be sent to the electric chair. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 Mr. Fenn. That would not do at all. Starring the award-winning Joe Sims. In short, Mr. Fenn, you are what may be regarded as disposable humanity... Don't you dare think that I started all of this out of political ambitions. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Dales, I do think that. And to show you that there is such a thing as redemption. To show you that you are educable and have potential. Show me? Show me, Mr. Dales? I think you're done showing me my potential. As we forgive them. Available now. To place yourself in the center of a dream doesn't make it a bad one. And this dream, my dream, in whatever depths of despair it may have been born, has become the start of something real. Listen at distinctnostalgia.com or search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, stay away from me. We're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. <laughs> We're sort of open. It was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You just go, you're going to see your father now for 10 minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. I didn't realise you'd done various quiz shows and things in America. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I um, just because you're on air every day and you're interviewing different people, you come across different things and people can see what you're doing. So it's like a, an advert, isn't it, for you? And I ended up guest hosting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire five times, which was fantastic fun. I did Phenomenon, which was an eight-part series. And then I did specials, lots of different specials, you know, covered the Macy Day, Macy Day Parade, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, various different bits and pieces. But I also hosted... As far, well, not as far as aware, I do know that I'm the only um, host to have hosted both Miss World and Miss USA. And Miss USA came about because at the time that I was um, situated in, in um, New York for years was when Donald Trump, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was, he was the face of The Apprentice. So he was the same as my, Alan Sugar over here. And um, I used to be dispatched to Trump Tower almost weekly to interview about who he'd sacked that week. But then I would be sent down to the Hamptons where he would be at the polo to talk about this. And by hook or by crook, because NBC also um, had the rights for Miss USA, I was asked to host it. And I did it with um, 
um, Donald there. But I'd been to Mar-a-Lago. I'd split with my girlfriend and I was very um, upset about it. And a very good friend of mine, Pete, who lives in Wrexham, said, listen, I'll come out and fly out and spend a weekend with you, just, you know, with an old mate and we can go and have a few drinks and put the worlds to right. And I said, that's really kind. I said, but this show, I've only been here a couple of weeks, but it's absolutely manic. You know, you think you finish for the day and then the, your, your, your Blackberry buzzes and you've got to go off and cover the Victoria's Secrets party tonight. You know, I said, so I don't know what's going to happen. I said, but you, you're coming over three, four days. We'll make it happen. You know, wherever, where, whatever's happening, I'll make sure they get a plus one for you. And he said, listen, I'm coming out to see you, whatever. Anyway, as it turns out, about four days beforehand, the, the producers in the uh, meeting said, listen, you're going to fly to Mar-a-Lago, which is only, you know, an hour or so's flight from New York, to cover a uh, benefit being hosted by Donald Trump for Diddy, P. Diddy. Um, and I said, great. And you're going to be there two nights. And I said, listen, I've got a friend coming out there. If I pay for his flight, which was something like 100 bucks, can he stay in the hotel with me? And then I can delay my flight back because it's at the weekend and I'll come back on the Sunday night. Yeah, absolutely. No problems at all. So I told him all this. And so when he arrived, I said, look, you're going to be on the flight. I'm going to fly down there. When have we got to the hotel? I said, listen, I'm going to Mar-a-Lago. Um, here's the address of where I am because it's only about 15 minutes away, 20 minutes from the hotel. Once I finish doing the red carpet interviews, there's a ball and an auction and I have to wait to cover the auction, but pretty much I'm finished. I'll see if I can get you in. You know, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago, private club. Let's see if we can get you in. He said, okay. So I gave him all the details and that was it. Just as the, the, the arrivals had all kind of finished and, you know, Claudia Schiffer, whoever all these beautiful people were there and I'd done all the little interviews, which was basically me outside by the swimming pool with a little red carpet area with my camera crew and producer and just a red rope, you know, around us so that we couldn't mingle with the, you know, the glitterati and they were brought over to us to interview and that was fine. Whilst I was just sitting there, the producer said, I think we're pretty rounded up. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to text my friend now and say, listen, try and get into a, it wasn't even Uber then, try and get into a cab and come over. And he is still to this day, one of my best friends and I'm godfather to his kids, but he is like Del Boy. You know, he's absolutely infectious, but sometimes he gets things wrong. But because he gets it wrong, he gets it right. And I'm standing there just looking at all these beautiful people. And the next thing I see him wandering around the poolside party when I'm segregated behind a rope. He's picked up a glass of champagne. He's having some canopies. I'm like, what's happening? And he doesn't even come over to me directly. He just kind of takes it all. And eventually he comes over and he goes, bloody hell, hey, tidy party this, isn't it? I said, how have you got in? He said, well, you got a piece of paper. I thought I'd chance my arm and come down a bit early, you know, you know, with these things. I said, no, I don't, and neither do you. I said, how did you get through security? He said, well, I just said I was with uh, Access Hollywood in your name. I said, bloody hell. <laughs> so what was it like? What, what is Donald Trump Towers like? I mean, what's, what kind of place is it? Well, very gold. Um, I'd never went to his apartment. He would always do it in the lobby or a conference room. So I don't know what his, his lobby looks like inside. Um, but very ostentatious. Um, you know, you've got to put this in, in perspective. It's 2005. Um, he was a big name. You know, he'd been in Home Alone. He was the, the face of The Apprentice. He was like, you know, somebody that could make millions just off his name, forget the fact that he was in real estate. And, he, and you know, it wasn't a surprise to me that he ended up being president because 
for a while, you know, I was at various functions with him, um, purely in a professional sense. But, you know, I went to his wedding, you know, I covered his wedding and he'd come out and give out all the reporters a glass of champagne. I did a, a day's filming with uh, Melania because she did a commercial when she first got married to him. You know, all these things um, that I was part and parcel of. He's one of those people that is no surprise to anybody, but he knows how to whip a room up very quickly. And, you know, if I was standing next to him at something and he'd be like, hey, have you met this Brit? He is the best Brit we have on American television at the moment. He's, and you start to believe and they're like, oh, right, well, you, we, we should talk to you about, you know, in, in whatever. and I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you start to be part and parcel of what that is, that hot air, that, you know, whatever you're harnessing, to the point that, you know, he's telling somebody else about how great you are or this, that, and the other. And, you know, he's high-fiving you and all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you go to high-five him and he's turned around and he's off talking to somebody else and you look like an idiot with your hand doing a, you know, a Nazi goose step on your own because there's nobody next to you. And that's how it is, you know, he just works everybody up and he was always very uh, professional and Donald to me, but you know, I, you know, I, I haven't seen him since he's uh, been running for the, uh, the presidency, but part and parcel of the show access were the ones that um, leaked the tapes, supposedly, allegedly leaked the tapes of him talking about grabbing a woman by the pussy. That was our show, that, that was taped on our show. I mean, you, don't, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know he was going to become president and all the rest of it. It's interesting that you say that the, the way he was and the, the sort of the, the blarney and the, the sort of the way you can manipulate people and, and sort of get his way, but also make people feel wonderful, I suppose, you mm -hmm. know, is, uh, is, is a skill in its way. Yeah. What, so, so in Miss World, what's interesting about Miss World is that... You, do, you don't hear, you don't see it over here anymore. You don't see about see any of these things. When I was growing up, when you were growing up, you know, every ITV region would have a Miss Granada, a Miss YTV, a Miss HTV, all that kind of thing. We, we've gone away mm -hmm. from that because of political correctness to some extent. And in mm -hmm. America, but America, it survives, doesn't it? And it survives in lots of other parts of the world as well. It's still a hugely popular thing. Massively huge. And it's also massive in the uh, Asian countries and um, the territory. Yeah. Yeah. I've, hosted, I've hosted Miss World four times, uh, twice out in China. And, that's, and one, the second time that I did it was very close to Christmas. And I decided to extend my stay out there and went to Thailand afterwards for a holiday. And it was amazing the amount of people that would come up because it's prime time there. And it's also, you know, it's still aired on the E! Network when I did it last. You know, it's, it's a big show, but in Britain particularly, I think because it was so big for so long and, and so caricatured of how it was that it kind of fell off its own perch. Whereas, you know, good looking, you know, in any other shape or form, it's good looking people um, being celebrated. But the way the show is now operated now well, since i've ever hosted it is that you know doctors win mm. you know it, it's people that have got something else to give apart from just their looks it's just that's part and parcel of it of course it's miss world it's going to be gorgeous looking people as a rule but the very first time that i did it the um i was still living in the states and i couldn't go out for the five days filming i had to literally fly out for three days and just do the rehearsals and then do the show and when I arrived um, and they took me from the hotel to the, the theatre, this massive theatre that where it was being held. And I was just given, I, given the script and said, go on stage because this will be the last time that we rehearse with all the women. It's 140 odd women. So they said, go into the middle of the stage, 
there's the script and the order cue. It's just for the cameras, but they can like you and see how you are. And then we'll get rehearsing tomorrow. So I stood there just in my civvy, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, you know, the whatever it is, Miss World here in China. Tonight, are you, here are your contestants, whatever I said. And then stood there with 141 good looking women walking out onto stage, joining me. And I just started giggling, you know, even though I was in my thirties at that point, thinking, this has got to be surreal, you know, 140, you know, 141 Miss World, the most good looking women ever from each country, all standing on stage with me, all smiling, because they think I've got some inside track to make sure that they're gonna win. You're just thinking, I used to go to Scott's nightclub in Wrexham and no woman would talk to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do, do you, I mean, I've, I've come across um, women who've, who've been involved in this world and interviewed them in, for different programmes in the past. I can't, remember, I can't remember any bloody names, unfortunately, because the name changed. <laughs> but, but basically, it's interesting, isn't it? That, that whole thing of, 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 of the Brits and some other countries who feel as though it's, um, it's, it's outdated, it's sexist, and all the rest of it. There are other people on the feminist side who actually say it's a great opportunity for women to showcase what they're about as individuals. You know, often the women who win will have campaigns on certain issues oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So there's a real, it's a really interesting sort of, um, you know, balance between how people, people view it. But did you and did you have any questions about doing it? I mean, did you no. ask yourself? No, not at all. Right. No, it was a massive paycheck, and I was hosting Miss World, and I was going to be in a glamorous location. <laughs> I had no questions the first, second, third, or fourth time that they asked me to do it. You know, it's just a, a big show. It's actually, though, as I joking apart, it's quite a technical show to to host because it's not a show that's regularly done as it's done once a year, but then that's it. It's not like it's done monthly. So everybody knows each other. It's usually in a different place every time it's with women that um, are all together for the first time. And a lot of them don't speak English and it's very technical because you're interviewing people, you're doing things, you're throwing to different cameras. Um, it, it, it's quite a, you know, a, a high hill to climb. And you've been watched all around the world. I mean, that must have been the biggest, one of the biggest audiences you personally will have got. Will have yeah. Been Miss world. Well, they said the first time I did, I think it was in 2008 or nine, whatever it was. Um, they said that the cumulative audience of Miss World, by the time it is aired in every territory. So it's not aired live everywhere, but it's still, you know, it's the same package that you put together when it's gone out live. is over a billion viewers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no way. And they were like, yeah. Yeah, so that's even halve it. That's still a lot of viewers. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you decided at some point, after all this time in America, um, which sounds really exciting, to come back to the UK. What, why did you do that? Um, I did three years, and when I say that the show was full on, it was full on. I must have done at least four, two to four flights per week. I would fly somewhere and back and do the show. And usually it would be two. And it would be weird and wonderful things like you have to fly to the Bahamas to cover a funeral, which was Anna Nicole Smith, if you remember that very beautiful Marilyn Monroe type character that married the billionaire that was 80 and she was 21. You know, anyway, she passed away. You'd be off there or you'd be going out to Tennessee or Nashville and you'd be flying back. And then I would go back and do can for two weeks and they say, well, you're in London, can you do Elton John? But you were constantly on the go. And after three years, 
I'm not really, it got to the point where I was getting off flights wherever it was. And because of the time difference with the UK or wherever, there was nobody that you'd be texting to say, I'm all right. You know, I've got here safely because you didn't have a significant other because you were just working like a, a showbiz hamster in this big wheel going. Um, and I had offers to do stuff back in the UK. Um, and luckily the Americans said, look, you're going to be based there. We love you. We continue to use you for Cannes. We'll continue to use you for all the British premieres and all the British, you know, films that they made. And a lot of films are made in Britain and in, you know, in Europe. So I just continued to do all that stuff. So it was a big jump. I love being in the States, but I miss being home. Um, but when I moved to the States again, no, probably now, because I have two little babies that I absolutely love and co-parent with. But at the time, I didn't. So I could jump ship from the UK and move out and do those things. But, you know, hurtling towards 50, you start to see it slightly different. When you came back to um, the UK, had things changed for you in the sense of, <laughs> you'd been this uh, household name that people knew but you hadn't been in the public eye here for a while no it's very much so yeah, yeah a bit I, I was kind of you know when i was in the states you know lots of doors were opened or closed because people could see what you were doing and they didn't know anything about blue peter they, you know they, they saw you as a guy of access that did a bit of millionaire and hosted the usa and did this that and the other and don't forget i was still flying backwards and forwards and doing doing stuff there and coming back. It was just, I was based back in London. But yeah, um, I, I did, um, when I came back, I did um, U the Euro lottery, which was launching them, which was the, the network of European, you know, rather than just the lottery show, it was this Euro lottery. I was doing bits and pieces, but a lot of people still was like, oh, you're the guy of Blue Peter that did this. And I was like, yes. But that was like, you know, 10, 12 years ago, and I've done all this other stuff. So there was a disconnect there, but you know, at least people knew you from something, I suppose. So you're back now in the UK. You're firmly uh, with your feet in, uh, in in South is it South London, West London, West London. You're in West London, yeah. West London, and you're embarking at the moment on a new series for the BBC, made by my production company, Made in Manchester, which makes distinct nostalgia, called The Likely Dads. What else is in store at the moment, Tim? Or or what kind of things? I mean, you, you know, you're still working. You're still doing great stuff. Obviously, you're a dad now. And obviously that takes up quite a lot of time. But, you know, are you still ambitious? Are there still things you really want to do? Yeah, I'm ambitious on behalf of my kids, really, to, to, to keep up um, some kind of standards for them that they can explore and do things because I'm, I'm earning money and they can experience what I'm doing. Um, many years ago, um, I started doing property. So I renovate, I've renovated... Ironically, I couldn't even put up a shelf, but I've got quite a good talent, I think, um, for seeing something and working out how to make it better and more uh, viable to sell for a better price. And I've done a few of those and I have a couple of rentals. So it takes the edge off me panicking every morning that, um, you know, bills need to be paid because I have a regular um, income from that. But yeah, I'm still very uh, ambitious to do different things and, um, you know, who knows what's around the corner, you know, next week I'm doing Pointless and a couple of other shows and find that fun. And I've just done some um, voiceovers for some show business documentaries for Channel 5. So you never know what's going to happen next, you know. And I can definitely categorically say I'm not going to be on um, Strictly this year or uh, I'm a celebrity, but, you know, I've done things like that before and you work out, you know, that why am I here dressed in 
sequins freezing myself on the ice. You just don't know what's going to happen next. But yeah, absolutely. And we're going to be doing a, a special for Distinct Nostalgia with you looking, well, we're, we're calling it, we're, let's not give too much away, but we're calling it In Search of Val. You mentioned it earlier on. Uh, <laughs> that's Valerie Singleton, by the way, to listeners. Um, so that should be interesting. And we'll be talking more about that in future weeks on, on, on Distinct Nostalgia. Tim, it's um, been lovely to speak to you and it's lovely to work with you at the moment as well. And I hope uh, we get lots of um, followers to, to, to Likely Dads. And of course, we'll, you'll also be back on Distinct Nostalgia soon with uh, In Search of Val and, and maybe some other things as well, which we might talk about soon. But yeah, it's been lovely to talk to you. You too. Distinct Nostalgia is home to some fascinating conversations with the names behind some iconic films of the 20th century. And we've a special treasure trove of interviews and reunions around great British film. There's Brief Encounter. I was making my first film at the age of 19 and so was playing Beryl, the young girl serving the teas in the refreshment room. I'm the last surviving member of this and I suppose I'm getting rather elderly. Plus Brassed Off. We didn't know that brass band music was going to be that popular. It just became a real word of mouth people's film. It stayed in the top ten in London for nearly three or four months I think and we eventually had to go up and ask them to stop showing it in Leeds because it was going to ruin the, uh, the video launch date. And Oliver. The phone went, and my mum shouted up saying, oh, you got the part of Oliver. And I remember being, because I was eight at the time, thinking, great, I'm going to have, like, six months off school. And that's all I thought. I didn't think anything else of it. Distinct Nostalgia. Celebrating great British movies. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or browse our existing programmes at distinctnostalgia.com. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.